Hello and welcome back. It's been Yamin Rose and myself, Kedalia Kittentag, with Mr. Professor Wimfront, a wide-angle view of Israel's biggest conflict in a generation. Hello, Yamin, we have a sad milestone to mark our 50th episode. Yes, it's been a while since we started, over three months now. And I guess all of us felt in some way, shape or form that this would wrap up quickly. I maybe thought that there would be a lot more international pressure on Israel to wrap things up. Well, and while there has been, it hasn't been as strong as I thought it would be. And also Israel has been standing much more resolute in the face of that pressure. In a way, we're happy that we're able to give these updates and to give people some information on what's going on that they might not be able to get from other sources, which are very biased against Israel. So from that point of view, I'm very happy that we've been working together on this and I hope that we'll continue to share developments and good news with our listeners. The couple of items that I do want to share this morning is there has been an escalation since the last time we spoke. First in the north, Hezbollah is firing stronger rockets, rockets with the bigger payloads at the north, and it's been causing more damage than in the past. So that's something that we have to look out for. It's obviously they're escalating. And so are we, as a matter of fact, because we're bombing more sites in southern Lebanon. The second thing that happened was uh, reported yesterday where three American soldiers were killed by an Iranian drone attack at a U.S. airbase near the Jordanian-Syrian border. Now, there's some dispute as to whether that airbase was in Syrian territory or Jordanian territory. The Jordanians are trying to say, no, it's not in our country because they're trying to avoid responsibility for it. But nevertheless, it's a significant uh, escalation. In addition to the three soldiers killed, there were at least 34 wounded. And I've heard that that Number is probably going to rise. And significantly, several Republican senators, including Tom Cotton of Arkansas and Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, is urging the Biden administration to take strong retaliatory measures. He says that if we don't do that, it's going to get worse because the only thing that Iran understands is force. And that if we keep saying we don't want to escalate and we don't want to use force, then they're going to get bolder and bolder. So not only are Israeli lives at stake, but now American lives are at stake as well. I'm not holding my breath as to the ferocity and scale of the counterpunch, uh, the American below, because they'll find they'll pick their time and place and maybe tonight, maybe next week, etc. But America has the ability to take on Iran and to take on others as well. This administration has shown that for all the talk of, you know, putting America back into the center of world politics, it is more deterred than the Iranians are. So I'd be surprised if there is an attack on Iran directly, on Tehran, etc. To my mind, they're going to respond by the proxies or something like that. I wait to be pleasantly surprised, but I'm not holding my breath. But Binyamin, I think that there's other issues in the world's intro over here. We saw a development over the weekend in which the UN agency, which is uniquely providing lifelong services for the Palestinians and their descendants for eternity, They've got a bloody nose because Israel has published proof that something like 12, 13 UNRWA personnel were directly involved in the October the 7th massacre to the state of distributing arms. You know, there was like a social worker, UNRWA social worker distributing arms. There was others who were busy getting in the festivities. And within a day or two, a whole slew of Western countries have pulled funding. Something like, I think, 50%, 58% of their budget has already been knocked off or paused, as let's say. I think this force is going to start rolling again because the Western countries have not swinged the fact that the UN is a thoroughly compromised and corrupt organization from top to bottom, and we shouldn't be engaging with it. But anyway, it's now paused. But it's shone a light, Benjamin, on the fact of the sheer 
penetration, the involvement of the UN aid agency in actually acting as an arm of Hamas, as in ruling Gaza. I know you have thoughts about that, but I just want to share with you just a short few quotes, choice quotes from one of Israel's leading journalists, Amit Segal, who published in his column some impressions from an officer who'd come back from Gaza. And the guy wrote like this, he says, Amit Segal quoted, he said, what did I learn from three months in the middle of Gaza? This was a reserve officer who was resident of Tel Aviv, a professional who was on the left wing. He was in the cat captain protests. And he said some interesting takeaways. Number one, he said, that the population density there is not as great as you think, right? And he said, the standards of living is better than it seemed to us from the outside. Number two, as use of Al-Aqsa is not just a religious symbol, but a national one appears everywhere. Images of the Golden Dome on school maths book, etc. He said, Arafat, despite being a leader of Fatah, was a big consensus in Palestinian society, even in the state of Hamas. His picture hangs everywhere in the houses there. And he said another thing. And he said, when you're there, you suddenly realize this is a country for all intents and purposes for the strength and power of the country's infrastructure, money, space. It's not a city. It's a real state with 2 million people, a country that decides to invest a lot of resources as a country. And the idea, therefore, that there's refugees there, these refugees are living in luxury apartments. But he said, and this is why I quote him, but it's just interesting background to see the soldier's eye view of what's going on. He said, speaking of UNRWA, there's an amazing phenomenon in Gaza. You enter luxury homes, luxury villas and apartments, beautifully equipped places. You find UNRWA material there. In the kitchen, bags of flour from UNRWA, in the children's room from the organization's school notebooks. It exists every house in the Strip. In other words, all residents of the Gaza Strip use the organization every day. Not necessarily because they had to, because they got used to it. They got close and relying on this organization became a fanciful thing. And that was a very interesting kind of like, literally from the front lines, a guy who spent months going to your houses there in the Gaza Strip. And he said, this organization is just so far reaching, so sprawling and so vast. And beyond, I think Israel and Israel supporters need to put the pressure on that to fold this organization down and close it down and to put it back in its regular dimensions. It's notable that we have pictures of Gedolim on our walls. We have pictures of Lahavdiel uh, Arafat on their walls. That tells a lot right there. As far as UNRWA is concerned, I'm glad you quoted Amit Segal. I see Amit every once in a while. And I also want to just give a shout out to Javi Friedman, who used to write for us many years ago. And he had a real pet peeve against UNRWA. And he wrote at least two stories when Chris Gunnis was the head of UNRWA here, where he would visit the so-called refugee camps that they're managing, mostly in the north of Jerusalem. And he wrote a couple of articles that were very tough on them and talked about mainly how they're providing, aside from the so-called humanitarian aid, they're also providing a lot of education materials to the Arab residents of Judea and Samaria and Gaza. And most of that material is as vile as anything that the Nazis put out during World War II. It's the most racist type of literature. And this is what the children of Gaza and Judea and Samaria, I'm talking about the Arab children, have grown up on. That's been their mother's milk for the past 20, 25 years. And that's shameful. And uh, you can lay that right on the door of UNRWA. UNRWA, or I should say the UN actually, I'll back up. The UN has successfully resettled probably in the neighborhood of 50, 60 million refugees since World War II. And all of a sudden the Palestinians, they just can't seem to do anything for. All they do is keep them perpetually in refugee camps to be a thorn in the side of Israel. And that's why I just have to laugh when 
we get accused, especially at the International Criminal Court of Injustice, as I like to call it. When Israel gets accused of violating humanitarian law, we have to prove that at least we're following it. And in the meantime, uh, UNRWA itself has been one of the biggest perpetuators of violations of international law, as far as I'm concerned, over the last decades by deliberately keeping so-called Palestinians in refugee camps and not allowing them to uh, resettle elsewhere or to get a better life anyplace else. That's shameful. And a lot of it is Israel's fault for not speaking up until now. Now they're starting to, but it's way too little too late. My prediction, I think you uh, said this also, is that in short order, I think funding will be restored. But I do also want to bring up that uh, when President Trump was in office, that he stopped U.S. funding to UNRWA. Now, that didn't stop UNRWA, but it did send a message to them. The fact that other countries have joined in now, I give them a lot of credit for that. It's a positive development. We'll see how far it goes. What do you think are the chances if we get a second Trump administration? Do you think that they are going to be able to successfully cut the UN down to size? Will they have the influence that on their agenda? I would say that Trump's second term is going to be remarkably different from his first one. And I couldn't even begin to predict in which ways yet. But one of the things that's impressed me over the past few months is almost everything you read in the insider type political literature about Trump's campaign and how he's running it and who is advising him. This is a big difference from his family and his close friends and associates in the real estate world that he counted on so heavily in his first term. Now, these are all qualified people. I'm talking about people like David Friedman, the former ambassador, Jason Greenblatt, Jared Kushner. These are all top-notch people with a lot of talents. He's not working with them this time. He has a completely different team, and his focus is going to be uh, very different. I think the first thing he's going to do is to get control, if he's elected, of course, and it's a big if. He might be leading in the polls right now, but it's very early. It's probably a given that he's going to get the nomination, but I don't think it's a given at all that he'll beat Biden. But let's speculate. Let's say that he does beat Biden, get in. I think his agenda, at least for the first six months, is going to be very heavily domestic. And he realized that he might have set a goal last time of draining the swamp, but I think he just added to it. This time, I think he's really going to try to get rid of a lot of people who were thorns in his side and try to restructure the, uh, the bureaucracy in the U.S. It's not an easy thing to do. Jimmy Carter talked about that in 1976 when he was running. One of his campaign platforms was that there's 200 agencies in the federal government. He was going to knock them down to 20. He didn't even come close. He ended up increasing them, as a matter of fact. So on the foreign policy front, I think uh, we're going to see a different Trump. And I remind our listeners that as pro-Israel as Trump was, he also added a lot of dollar signs in front of his eyes when it came to dealing with the Arab world. And I don't think that's changed. So that's going to influence his foreign policy as well. So yes, I think he'll be as pro-Israel as he was the first time around. But a lot of what he needed to do has already been done. It's not going to be easy to get uh, more nations to sign on to the Abraham Accords. And if they do, the price will be high, both on the U.S. and the Israel side. And as far as the international organizations are concerned, well, he's not a big fan of the U.N. or UNRWA to begin with, but I don't think it's going to be his highest priority. No, and I think we take a long detour via the, you know, speculation about the future Trump administration, which is important to understand. I just want to circle back to one thing which we were talking about a minute ago, which is Amit Segal again was quoting this officer who was saying that the what he discovered there is not a city. The Gaza Strip is a state and state level infrastructure. That reminds me that one of the items that came out the last few days in May waves was a New York Times report, well sourced, in which he was saying that 
whilst it was long understood that Hamas were able to arm themselves in this incredible way through the tunnels um, that we spoke last week about the Philadelphia corridor. So he said that according to unnamed Israeli officials, they think that something like only 20% of stuff was smuggled in. Something like 80% of Hamas's armory was domestically produced. And many of that, of the best and most advanced weapons, were created directly from Israel. Because Israel, under the various, you know, for the last 50 years, mowing the grass and bombing them, etc., and something like 10 to 15% of ordnance does not explode over there. When you drop big bombs, they contain a lot of military-grade explosives, which they cannot replicate. But what they're able to do is saw off the, the saw down into the bombs and get the stuff that they needed. And for me, Binyamin, and this is very interesting, interesting, but it's also worrying. The idea that Hamas are able to do this shows us exactly what Sega was writing. These are organizations showing sophisticated capabilities. And you know, it reminds me when I wrote something when the U.S. got out of Afghanistan, the beginning of Biden's term, I wrote something headlined and I quote my own headline because it, it reminds me of this. Jihadis plus terrorists equals terror. And I wrote the following thing. If two decades of fighting without terror have taught us anything, it's that when fundamentalists control sovereign territory, the flames of jihadism burn bright. That means that when the Taliban's control of state resources in the 1990s, that they're in 9-11 attack. The same happened under Islamic State in 2004. Control of our space of Iraq and Syria gave the big resources to undermine Middle Eastern regime and block terror abroad. You know what? I think that's key. When you let jihadist groups act as a sovereign in an area, they will redirect all of the resources of whatever territory they control to creating jihadi capabilities that are far, far bigger than they could have if they would just had to run from cave to cave. And that's crucial. I think this is crucial to understand me from the day after in Gaza. We keep talking about it. If you let them control that territory, they are to all offense, influence and purposes, a sovereign. They are a government. They will leverage and use all the resources of that territory to do very bad things, as we've seen with this New York Times report. You can't, we have to deny them that. They have to be sent back to running around from one tunnel to another and another sovereign needs to be in place. I think that's the takeaway message I see from this. Gudalia, I'll take that one step further. I know you have something positive to end with, but I just want to add that there's been a lot of talk about the IDF carving out a security zone in Gaza after all is said and done of anywhere between one to three kilometers. Just keep in mind, that's a very, very small piece of land. And what's going to happen when the citizens of Gaza start coming to that security zone and taunting the IDF troops like they've done in the past? Are we able to go, are we going to be able to fire at them or are we going to say, oh no, these are innocent civilians and let them encroach on the security zone to the point where it's not much of a security zone anymore. This is a very serious consideration and it needs to be taken into account by the military brass and the political echelon before they satisfy themselves with this one to three kilometer security strip, which in American distance terms is anywhere between a mile and two. But yeah, when there's not such great signs, because already reports yesterday, why it was Khan, the national broadcaster, who are neighbors here at Mishpachak, the same building, they reported that soldiers on the ground are reporting that they've been given new open fire orders, which have denied them the ability to open fire on Palestinians who are encroaching already on this as yet incomplete, you know, security buffer zone. So, I mean, I really worry that the top IDF brass has not learned the lesson from this. It is worrying when you hear those reports. The army denied it. But again, this was reports from journalists of hit. You know, and I want to end with, you know, as we said, we always try to lighten things and to leaven the doom and gloom with something more positive. 
And in this particular case, there's a piece that's seen by veteran military analyst, Edward Lovewack, in which he says the following interesting thing. He says, with all the talk of Israel struggling, so it's important to remember that Israel is actually winning the political war. And he says like this, look back in 1967, 1973, when the UN Security Council rushed to impose a ceasefire as soon as Israel started winning. Today, that's not the case. The US is broadly speaking behind, despite threatening currently to slow down the transfer of arms that's being reported yesterday. The US is still broadly behind Israel. China is still trading. Russia is still coordinating security control. Most importantly, he points out, Saudi Arabia has said clearly, despite all the leveling with Latin about the Saudi Arabia, the anchor of the Sunni world, is on board for a deal with Israel post-war. He says, those assurances from Saudi Arabia cannot be overestimated. There are, after all, definitive evidence that Hamas's assault on October the 7th has failed. And that, to me, Benjamin, is a very, very important piece of good news, which is, yes, we're going to be facing a very, very daunting battle with the international community over so many things. The post-war future of Gaza, there's so many different visions for that. We had yesterday a conference in Yerushalayim in which multiple government ministers attended, in which they were saying that we should return to the et etc. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think it should happen, to be honest, but leave that one aside. What we see is Israel is not in the same international state of siege that we were in 1967-1973. And Baruch Hashem, it's taken the war, a dreadful loss of life to show that. But Hashem has provided our horizon for hope of it. If I could just add one caveat to that, I would say that not to douse the cheer. However, in 1967 and 1973, there was always a fear of superpower confrontation. The Soviet Union was supporting the Arab side. The U.S. was supporting Israel. And in order to avoid a superpower confrontation, it was very important to end the war as quickly as possible. At this time, that's not the case. So that could be why Israel has been given more leeway. But on the other hand, the very fact that there isn't a superpower supporting the Arab side is exactly the reason why that Israel does have this extra leeway. And if anything, you can give some credit to Henry Kissinger for that, who passed away recently. But one of Kissinger's biggest foreign policy ideas was that he wanted to do everything that he possibly could to get rid of Soviet influence in the Middle East. Now, we know we don't have the Soviet Union anymore. We do have Russia, and Russia does have influence in Syria, but the overall risks uh, are less. However, there's Iran lurking in the background, so there's definitely a lot to watch out for. But otherwise, I would agree that uh, we are in a better political position than we were you know, 30, 40 years ago, even though it doesn't seem that way sometimes. Yeah. And beyond just to sign off on that, that encapsulate that in the process, we have credit where it's due. The Pasuk initially says, describe the international relations. It says, Leib Malafim Yadashem, Lacholish Yachwit Siaten. The hearts, rather, of kings are in the hands of Hashem. And he ultimately guides international affairs. So now let's sign off for the 50th episode. Good wishes, Mitzvah Shem, for you, for all the listeners, for all the ambitious going. Bye-bye.